Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 368 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Ryan Holiday. He's a media strategist whose clients have included American Apparel and Google, as well as many best-selling authors such as Tony Robbins and Tim Ferriss. He's also the author of six books, including The Obstacle is the Way and Ego is the Enemy. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new book, Conspiracy, a true story of power, sex, and a billionaire's secret plot to destroy a media empire, about Hulk Hogan's lawsuit against Gawker. And if you're not familiar with this case, basically what happened is that Gawker was a gossip website that was notorious for its take-no-prisoners attitude. After they published a sex tape of Hulk Hogan, which had been recorded without his knowledge, Hogan sued Gawker for invasion of privacy and won a $150 million judgment that bankrupted the company. It later emerged that this lawsuit had been secretly funded by Silicon Valley billionaire Peter Thiel, who for years had been incensed by Gawker's coverage of him and his associates. And I'm especially interested in this case because both Peter Thiel and Nick Denton, the founder of Gawker, are big science fiction fans. And it seems to me that their love of science fiction has profoundly shaped their worldviews and contributed to their willingness to push boundaries in both good ways and bad. And so now here's our interview with Ryan Holiday. All right, so we're here with Ryan Holiday. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, so how did you get the idea to write a book about Nick Denton and Peter Thiel? You know, I, I didn't necessarily get the idea to write the book. It, it wasn't a book that I really thought anyone could write or could write well because but by definition, it's the story of a secretive billionaire who destroyed a, 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 a media outlet. And so the idea that anyone would get his side of the story was to me an impossibility. So I'd, I'd written about it for my media column. I had a media column with the New York Observer for a long time. And so I wrote sort of about what I thought the case represented and, and maybe that I, I thought people were getting some of the coverage about it wrong. And so, uh, out of the blue one day, I got an email from Peter Thiel who said, you know, I liked your column. I'd like to talk to you. And we ended up having dinner and I happened to already know Nick Denton. And it occurred to me, uh, that I was probably one of the few people on the planet that had a relationship with these two sort of mortal enemies. And so the book really came from, you know, being in the unexpectedly right place at the right time where where both of these unusual characters were willing to 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 talk about the maybe the most surprising thing that had ever happened in either of their lives. So when you say that you already knew Nick Denton, how did you know him? So I was the marketing director for a company called American Apparel for many years. And uh I would say American Apparel and Gawker had sort of a symbiotic relationship. Gawker loved to write crazy, controversial things about uh, you know, unusual individuals and, and the company that I worked at was a sort of a frequent subject of Gawker stories. And, uh, Nick had this unusual habit of even as his website would savage people, he would reach out and say, you know, I think what you're doing is interesting or we should get together one, uh, sometime. And so I'd been to Nick's uh, house, you know, on several occasions and he'd, he'd had these interesting parties. And would often, he would often invite people again that his websites were pretty adamant about criticizing or, or taking down. So I'd met Nick a few times. We'd gone back and forth. And a, another unusual thing about Nick is he's social, but typically like through the computer. So even on this book, um, he 
he wanted to do all the interviewing over Gchat. That's like his preferred medium of communication. So he and I had sort of struck up this relationship where we talked just back and forth. He would be on, he'd send me a message and ask me about something. And I would, you know, sneak in some questions about Hulk Hogan. And the, the book sort of developed organically along these lines. Again, it was this surreal thing. These two men had spent literally tens of millions of dollars and almost a decade of their lives uh, fighting each other, sort of knowingly and unknowingly. And, and yet uh, they were both speaking to me um, and, and would ask questions through me as an intermediary. It was just a, a very surreal experience. Well, yeah, I would imagine that must be surreal when you just check your email and it's like from Peter Thiel. I mean, do you feel yes. like this is awesome or do you feel like I'm in over my head or what's going through your mind at that moment? It was a little of both. I mean, in the first email that I got from Peter, he said, you know, I, I liked your column. If you're ever in New York City, let me know and let's have dinner and we'll talk about the MBTO. And then in parentheses, he put Manhattan-based terrorist organization, which, as it turned out, was the acronym that he used to describe Gawker when he was orchestrating this conspiracy. He would refer to it as the MBTO, so no one knew what he was talking about. And so it was a almost from our first interaction in an interesting peek inside the mind of someone who... Uh, is operating on a in their in their own reality. I mean, like I, I was, I'd been critical of Gawker over the years. I, I was not necessarily uh, convinced that a, a horrible injustice had been done when they when when they were bankrupted by the lawsuit. But I mean, I would never have described them as a terrorist organization. And so you're you're you were immediately just sort of introduced into, wow, this is going to this this person has a strong point of view. Clearly. Or they wouldn't have gone to the lengths that they went to to do what they'd done. I mean, one thing that really struck me in your book is that both you describe both Nick's apartment and Peter's apartment as being just full of books. I think you say Peter's apartment has books stacked six feet high or something. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion about sort of like nobody reads anymore and books are dead and all this kind of stuff. I don't know how true that is, but it just struck me that these two really powerful, influential people are just very immersed in books in particular. I think, I think that, that, that is, that is right. And, and what is unusual about it is that, okay, so Peter is associated with being a technology investor. So you'd think sort of very cutting edge up on all the latest trends, you know, obsessed with what's happening now, now, now. And then Nick Denton running a gossip media empire. You'd think be very obsessed with, with what's going on in the news. You know, the, the latest thing that people are outraged about on Twitter. And yet what, what's, what's makes them both so different and then so, so similar to each other is that I found them both to be very big picture individuals. Um, both tended to think about things both historically and, and in terms of the distant future. Both were, uh, sort of not necessarily immediately up to date onto what was happening right now in popular culture. Um, that they're 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 two individuals who live very much inside their own heads, and I think uh, inside the the books and the big thinkers that they admire and have have shaped uh, their worldview. And I think what's what's interesting too is the idea that both of them are sort of somewhat libertarian, uh, both sort of economic, psychological, historical in their thinking, and so 
it, it's it's I guess maybe ironic and then a little sad that these two men who maybe in other circumstances might have been uh, collaborators or friends ended up on this collision course where they they believed one they had to destroy each other. Right, and the line that really jumped out to me from the book that I really wanted to talk to you about is you're quoting Corey Sicha, Gawker's editor in 2003, and the book says, Corey would remark later about how much Peter reminded him of Nick. Each of them seemed to be living in his own sci-fi novel. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and and as far as the kinds of books they like, both of them are are pretty big sci-fi fans as well. I think both of them like live in this world where the role of the entrepreneur is to invent the future. Right. I think that's what Peter thinks his job is, is to do is to create the innovation and the growth and the change that, you know, America or the free world needs to survive and, and to avoid catastrophe. And I think for many years, Nick and Gawker, even though it might not seem like it because they're this, they're, they're running these sort of celebrity gossip stories. But I believe that Nick was under the impression that the role of Gawker was to sort of usher in a, a new world of transparency, of, 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 of truth. You know, this, this idea that, um, I, like sort of Gawker's editorial ethos was that there are the stories that people are reporting on. And then there are the stories that journalists are talking about in bars that they're afraid to write about or maybe not free to write about. And I think Nick saw himself as, as disrupting and changing the world for the better as being the outlet that would publish those stories. And even some of the, technological innovations and and sort of web interfaces that he 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 experimented with with at Gawker were also this sort of were also somewhat future oriented in that way and so you know maybe deep down what what these guys are fighting about is not just who gets to say what about who but like whose vision for the future is the right one and 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 so there's this idea, and I think this is what Corey was saying, is that they were so similar that it, that it probably made it impossible for them to understand each other. You know, sometimes like the people that are most like us are the ones we have the most irrational frustration or or, or hatred for. And I, I think that contributed to to this feud that ultimately the book is about. It's funny you say that. That just makes me think of this old episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where there's this transporter accident and it turns out that there's basically two versions of Riker and they can't stand each other. And there's this they have this whole conversation with Worf sure. where where he says, well, everybody likes Riker. How come Riker doesn't like himself? And, and it's like this sense of, well, you want to be an individual and you don't want the sense that there's someone just like you out there in the world. Yeah. And there and there might be this sort of uncanny valley where like uh, – Nick is the New York City media version of Peter Thiel, and Peter Thiel is the Silicon Valley, uh, you know, billionaire version of, of, of Nick Denton. And, and I, I think, you know, early on, you know, in 2007, although Thiel is an early investor in Facebook, but it's not clear just how big this investment is going to turn out to be. That there, you could argue that they were peers, right? At the outset of this feud, you know, Nick Denton is running a media empire in, in New York City, um, which is the media capital of the world. And, and Peter Thiel has started to build up this investment portfolio in the, the technology capital of the world. And so they're, they're sort of the equal kings of, of their respective kingdoms. But between 2007 and 2016, 
Peter experiences exponential success. I mean, Facebook goes public and his stake is worth billions of dollars. Palantir uh, becomes one of the most valuable private companies in the country. His invest, his other investments are worth billions and billions of dollars. So Peter goes from this sort of unknown guy in Silicon Valley that was maybe a little weird that people were making fun of to this incredibly powerful person. And I think that that must have just poured gasoline on this, uh, you know, sort of weird, deep, unconscious uh, feud between the two of them in some way. I've heard you make the point, though, that at the same time that Nick would be jealous of Peter's wealth, that Peter would be jealous of Nick's cultural influence. So they each could see the other as the powerful one. I, I think I think that's absolutely right. And and even if Peter is um, wealthier, what Nick has is 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 the, the the media platform he has he's reaching literally billions of people every month through this massive uh media company that is probably the most influential media company inside the media industry and so um yes P uh, denton has this sort of cultural cachet this sort of uh influence over what people are thinking and and look i, I Peter, I believe, fancies himself as a little bit of a philosopher, right? As a big thinker, as a as a person who realizes that it's ultimately um, these attitudes that the public has that shapes the direction that technology can go. So I, I think there was probably some mutual envy between the two of them. And that's what sets these kind of uh, tectonic plates jostling against each other for the first time. So when you say that they're both sci-fi fans, could you say more about that? Like, what would be the um, the evidence of that or examples of that? I mean, uh, I, I think they both read The City and the Stars, which is a book that I, I quote in the thing. They, I, as far as I know, they they were just both. First off, they're both sort of awkward nerds. That that's that would be the uncharitable way to describe them. That both sort of grew up loving technology, loving change, loving the the sort of vision of what the future can be. And then as far as I know, they're both readers of, of all sorts of interesting work, including science fiction. Okay, I'll just give you some of the examples that I turned up in my research. I mean, Ooh, I'm very interested. Yeah, so apparently Nick was, when Nick started Gawker, that summer he'd been working on a science fiction novel, and he set no the novel way. aside to start Gawker. Um, and then also, I mean, he started io9, which is, I sure. think, the most popular science fiction website, if not the most popular, certainly one of the most popular um, I'll just say full disclosure that this podcast used to be on io9. So, ah, okay. Uh, I'll just throw that out there. Sure. Um, and it's interesting because I read in, you know, Annalie Newitz, um, was one of the editors of io9, and she said that Nick said to her when he start, you know, launched it that he wanted it to be about optimism and the future and beauty mm -hmm. and, and these, all these things that you don't think about in relation with Gawker so much. Totally. And and look, all of Teal's company, I mean, Teal is, I think, the more obvious fan of science fiction as far as I know. But basically, all the all the companies that Teal owns are named after different things in in the Lord of the Rings and, and you know, sort of different science fiction uh, novels that he grew up reading. So there is this inherent nerdiness to their worldview. And, and I wonder if that does contribute to their lack of, uh, uh, you know, ability to understand each other or empathize with each other. Well, it definitely seems to me that oh, I think a lot of times people who read a lot of science fiction think about possibilities in a way that in a different way that the possibility space is broader, but then at the same time, maybe don't consider how, how what they say is seen by other people. 
Um, yeah, I, I, I think that's right. I mean, one of one of the interesting things to me about uh, Nick's understanding, and I think this is internalized by the people who work at Gawker, was this idea that because it was happening on a computer, because they were writing about it on the internet there wasn't necessarily real-world consequences. And I don't mean even for the people writing it, although clearly that was the biggest misperception that, that Gawker had. It was that if you write something really horrible about someone or you attack someone, or, or even if you're just snarky and not, not particularly sensitive, that this affects people in the real world. It affects their living. It affects how they feel about themselves. It, it drives a narrative or an understanding about them in the real world. And I think that was something that Peter was hypersensitive to. When, when this first article comes out, outing him as gay, you know, I think the initial read is like, okay, Peter doesn't want to be known as gay. And, and I think that's his prerogative, right? We can, we can debate that, but he, he, I think it's actually less that. And what he told me, and, and it was hard to capture this in the book because it's, it, it, it made more sense when you could hear him say it than, than you see it in writing. It was that, it was that he, the, the tone of the article as he read it was that he was weird for not wanting you to know he was gay. And so this is like an, I think an interesting, very, um, very insular, uh, understanding, uh, very, very unique worldview. But he was very concerned that once this piece came out and then once pieces were built on top of it, his reputation would no longer be his to control and that he would be somehow sort of permanently branded as this weirdo, uh, this, this freak of some kind. And, and that's just, I, I think that was a very hard pill for him to swallow. Yeah. I mean, that's something that comes through very clearly in the book as it goes along is that um, Nick seems to see it all as a game and seems to think that everybody is is in on the joke and that everybody at some level is flattered by any sort of attention. Yeah. Um, and it just can't doesn't seem to just get at some basic level people not wanting to be the center of attention. Yeah, well, the irony is uh, I, I talked to A.J. Delario, who, who ultimately ends up writing the whole Kogan article that uh, – that, that bankrupts, uh, the company or that, that is the subject of, of Till's lawsuit. But he had, I, he had written something about a friend of mine and I was talking to him about this piece. This is several years before any of this had even happened. And, and he said, don't you understand? This is, I, I thought you, he basically says, I thought you understood. This is all just professional wrestling. And it's, it was an interesting thing to hear because where was this advertised as being professional wrestling? And it sure doesn't feel like professional wrestling when, you know, a, a headline calls you a rapist or an idiot or a fool or the, the worst person in the world or, you know, any of the hyperbolic things and, and sometimes quite funny things that Cocker headlines would say. It certainly didn't feel that way. And so um, it, it was certain, I think, a one-sided impression that this was all fun and that, that everyone was enjoying it. Well, yeah, and then by the same token, Peter seems to completely not grasp how going after Gawker is going to turn the entire media against him. I mean, he seems completely naive about the extent to which that's going to happen. I think he is. I think he, even before that, he's he's naive that that this is kind of a cost of doing business too, right? That like 
that one of the trade-offs of being a a billionaire and the owner of of some of the most well-known companies or most powerful companies in the world is that your private business is no longer as private. I, I mean, I'm not saying that your sexuality now affects uh, anyone, but it is interesting that a guy who, who creates his company Palantir, which is designed to scrape data from as many sources as possible to discern and and, and find things out about people and notice patterns about them, would have this outsized reaction to uh, a, a relatively small piece of information about his private life being made public. So, so there is, yeah, I think going both ways, this almost pathological inability to understand the point of view of the adversary. Like that they, they were these sort of morally opposite viewpoints that um, were inherently and inevitably going to crash into each other and were it's prob that w they're probably mutually exclusive. Now, before I read your book, I knew pretty much nothing about Peter Thiel. And I, to the extent that I'd ever thought about it before, I just had this vague sense that he was like a James Bond villain, basically. I think he likes that impression. <laughs> I, th I don't, th I don't think like if, if you told him you could like, here are the public relations steps to eliminate your, uh, you know, the perception of you as a James Bond villain, I'm not sure he would take you up on it. I think it, in, in some respects, I think it served him well. I mean, but I just, you know, I just read all these articles and it says things like he wants to destroy democracy or end women's suffrage and things like that. And just from reading your book, it, it's very hard for me to believe that uh, that's based in reality, those kinds of, and it's everywhere. Um, yeah, and, and I, I think he was, in a sense, of uh, one of the early victims of this um blogging culture where it's so easy to establish narratives about people that are very difficult to dislodge. And, and you know, I, I thought that too. I thought that I'd seen the quote where he basically says, like, you know, uh, democracy and capitalism are uh, incompatible and, and how the, the extension of suffrage to women had set libertarian causes back. And then when you read this essay, uh, which he wrote for the Cato Institute, I mean, look, there are definitely some lines that if I was the editor, I would say, I don't think you mean to say this the way that you're saying it, or I don't think this is going to be received well. It sounds like you are advocating X or, or Y. But when you read the article, it, you know, it's, these are not the rantings of a madman or, or of a, of a demagogue or even a populist. He's, he's making, I mean, in the libertarian case, he's saying, look, the the libertarian causes have gotten less popular as women have been able to vote. And he's basically saying, what does that say? He's saying that this does not bode well for these things that me and my fellow libertarians, many of which I imagine are women, uh, think are important. And, and so he has this tendency to, to think about things in a controversial or a, 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 a now the label sort of contrarian way that just don't let like – if you're a blogger who gets paid based on the page view, based on your page views, and who is dependent on viral social sharing to get those page views, you're 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 gonna use to your advantage, right? You're not gonna be charitable to the person saying them. You're gonna take the the most incendiary read on what he's saying because it's it, it makes for great copy, right? And as uh, sort of open to uh, hostile readings as that piece he wrote may be. 
How many people writing about him have actually read that piece? I would imagine pretty much everybody is just repeating what they saw in a headline somewhere. Yeah, and look, Gawker was in, in many ways the pioneer of that business model, right? Which is, what can you quickly Google about this person? What can you throw up before anyone else? What's the most uh, provocative headline you can put on the piece? What can you say that's going to elicit comments and chatter in that bottom of the piece? And 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 how can you say the most in the fewest words? And so I, it it is interesting that Peter had this intuitive sense that his his personal reputation and the way that Gawker liked to write about things were were not well suited to each other um, was in was in some respects spot on. Um, so the argument, I guess, is is how much of this you know epic quest that he goes on is motivated by you know philosophical or um, cultural uh, feelings and more just like this is bad for business and it's bad for me and I want it to go away. I mean, one of these, uh, he's, he's funded a bunch of kind of science fictional projects in the real world. And, and one of them is seasteading. These, they want to build these uh, sort of floating cities on the ocean. And I, I interviewed this guy, Joe Quirk. He's the head of the Seasteading Institute. And he wrote a book about it. I thought it was really interesting. I mean, it sounds pretty cool to right. me. Um, but, um, I have no idea how feasible it is, but, um, it, it sort of bugs me in the, in the media how, uh, people will say Peter Thiel wants to build floating cities on the ocean. What a kook. Um, without, I mean, I have no problem if they say he wants to build floating cities on the ocean. Here's a thoughtful examination of the idea and why it won't work. He's a kook, but it, it feels like they're just completely skipping that middle step and that the, um, you know, the calling him a kook on, on something like seasteading is, is just based entirely on the fact that it's different and the fact that they don't like his politics. Um, so, so, so Peter took, took some time in my interviews to sort of delineate that there were two criticisms that he had at Gawker. So one is the kind of ethical and cultural one of like, is it right to out people for being gay? Is it good to have people who are cruel or mean or post, you know, stolen celebrity, uh, you know, leaked nude photographs? You know, is this sort of cyberbullying, you know, do we want to allow that in a civil society? You know, so that was sort of one prong of, of his critique. But the second critique, and I think this is what, these are the kinds of things that get him out of bed in the morning. The second critique is, what is the overall social cost of dismissing an idea like seasteading and anyone associated with it as a kook? It might not be a good idea, I think he would admit. But what does it say when we can't even have a discussion about anything unusual or untraditional or strange or counterintuitive? You know, what does this cost us as a society in terms of innovation and change and the inability or sorry, in the ability to break new ground or explore new possibilities? I think his point was Gawker was in that respect sort of and, and the media at large. Um, was sort of this enforcer of sameness, like a political correctness, not in terms of language, but a political correctness in, in the sense of like, don't get too far out there. Don't say things that are upsetting or weird. Don't question the status quo. Um, just be normal, right? Just be normal or we'll make fun of you. I think in a way, that's what he felt. That's what Gawker came to represent to him. Even it, that, that, 
that might not be totally fair. There might be some projection in that. And then they might be a, only a small contributor to it, even if it is this problem. But I think what motivated him was this idea of like, we might be missing out on the next big thing because before it has a chance to get its legs out, uh, its legs under it, everyone's making fun of it for being dumb. Right. And when you mention political correctness, I mean, the other billionaires who are big science fiction fans that at least that I'm familiar with that I've talked about on the show are Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. Yep. And you described this conversation you had with um, Peter Thiel, where I think you asked him, uh, Elon Musk says that his mission in life is to put a man on Mars. What's your yeah. mission in life? Yeah. And and he said, yeah, my mission is to destroy or eliminate, you know, political correctness. And, and, you know, my initial reaction, and, and it is interesting, Peter does not let you get away with sort of flippant remarks, you know, uh, or, 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 or sort of half-baked thoughts. But, so my initial emotional reaction to this is like, that doesn't seem that important, right? Because again, I was thinking about that sort of, let's call it type one political correctness, which is like, what are you supposed to call this minority or that minority? You know, is it appropriate to make jokes about X, Y, or Z? You know, this, the sort of run of the mill, you know, cultural appropriation type political correctness. Um, that didn't seem that important to me. And then to, to hear him sort of expand the definition of political correctness to being about, um, thinking for oneself, um, deviating from sameness. Being able to entertain uncomfortable or unusual or, you know, in some cases, even laughable ideas because they have the potential to change the world. That does strike me as important. And when you look at some of the things that Peter has invested his considerable fortune in, they, they tend to go along these lines, right? He, he has this, that he has the Teal Fellowship, which pays promising students to drop out of college and explore interesting sort of moonshot projects. Um, he, he, he has a, a foundation that that supports and propagates like the um the the intellectual work and theories of the philosopher René Girard um also sort of a, a deviator of political correctness of of sort of imitation and 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 mimicry you know so so there there is this uh there is this theme running through Thiel's life that the big ideas we need as a society to survive as a society depend on weirdness and strangeness and and unpredictability and if we have a media or a culture that over here is squashing that we're in big trouble he also i've seen him talk a lot about how science fiction today kind of sucks and it's lost yeah. its way and it used to be about doing great things and an optimistic future and now it's just about how bad the future is going to be did you ever talk to him about that i i did a little bit you know he, he that is a, another theme of his this idea that we we don't think about ambitiously about the future. We don't think about big things. Um, you know, related to the idea in the book, uh, the, the, the title of the book is conspiracy. And the, the sort of theme throughout the book is like, how do conspiracies work? How do they happen? Why don't we believe in them? And that's this other view from Peter, which is similar to the, the, the science fiction thing, which is that people don't really believe in conspiracies anymore. You know, we, be, there's the Alex Jones weirdos of the world, you know, who believe that, uh, you know, maybe Sandy Hook was a, was a, uh, a, a fake or, or that 9-11 was an inside job or that, you know, there's these lizard people that are running the world. We understand that there, there are fools who believe in conspiracies. 
But as far as like the machinations, like how things really work behind the scenes, we pretty much think nobody's getting anything done, that nothing's possible, that, that there is no one operating behind the scenes, that things just kind of are what they are. And I, I would imagine that contributed, that that was a, a benefit to Peter as he was pulling and planning off this, planning and pulling off this conspiracy. No one would, even, even as evil as we might think a billion, a billionaires are, nobody thinks they're plotting in, in secret through proxies to bring down a media outlet. So one other thing on Nick versus Peter, I kind of wanted to mention. So just yeah. as I was doing research, it seems like the work, the science fiction work that Nick mentions loving the most is Isaac Asimov's foundation. And I'm not sure to what extent this is a favorite of Peter's, but you definitely mentioned him liking, and he's mentioned liking Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. Yeah. And it sort of occurs to me that Asimov's foundation is about this decadent civilization that's collapsing, and there's this small band of heroes that are attempting to preserve knowledge in the face mm -hmm. of that. And then Atlas Shrugged is about sort of tech entrepreneurs who reject socialism and start a great new society based on libertarian principles. Sure. And you don't have to squint very much to see how... Nick and Peter could see themselves as enacting those two narratives in their own lives. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right, and it, it's interesting too that again, instead of teaming up, they are they they came to believe that the other one, uh, you know, more so in Peter's case uh, towards Nick than the other way around, but they came to believe that the other was an impediment to the fulfillment of that vision, um, even though again. They they share so many interests and their worldview is is so similar. Right. I saw in your um, 2017 reading list you said that you actually read The City in the Stars by Arthur I C. Clarke. I did. So what was just could you talk? What was the experience like of reading it? I thought it was a really interesting book. I mean, one one of the things I I took from it that I think uh, connects to Peter is you know it's this, they they go to this this planet and uh, as if I recall. Uh, Everyone is living forever, right? And, and because there is no death, there's no birth. And that this sort of the emptiness of this world where, uh, there, there's not, uh, it, it struck me that if, if Peter's other vision is successful, that we do get radical life extension, um, that, that maybe it, it, it isn't the utopia that he thinks it is. Did you, you read it because it was a favorite of his and or Nick, sir? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I just tried. I was trying as what the other interesting thing about Peter and, and Nick is that they are they are men of few words. <laughs> and so, it, you know, um, you, you don't get especially even if you listen to interviews of them, you'll, you'll pick up on this. But you don't you, they don't tend to speak at length about themselves, about their feelings, about what they like or dislike. Um you know, it'd, it'd be like, Peter, you know, what's your what's your favorite movie? You know, uh, wh what's your favorite novel? You know, are you happy? These are <laughs> questions that I think um, if if you ask the most subjects, you could get them to talk for many hours and you would tend to get relatively short, truncated answers from them. And so I tried to to read things that they were a fan of that had informed them that uh, or talk to people who knew them. And, and to to sort of extend out this picture, and e even so, you know, you, you're you're still uh, there. There's this. Um, I don't. One of my favorite movies is the is Tombstone, and I, I read an interview once where Val Kilmer was talking about the creating the character Doc Holliday, 
and he talked about it sort of putting clothes on a ghost. I wouldn't say that that Denton and Teal are are quite that extreme, but there was kind of an element of like uh, of of not not fully understanding what makes these individuals tick because I'm not sure they fully understand what makes them tick. And and I found that just very fascinating about them. Well, I mean, one interesting thing I heard you say is that you would ask Peter a question and he would just stare at you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh He's, he's, uh, he's known for his extended pauses. Um, yeah. So you would ask him a question, just like if, if you asked me a question on this podcast and I, I sort of paused, um, you might, you might, especially if you're sort of insecure as I, as I sometimes feel in interviews, you, you would, you would go, Oh, maybe I, my question's not clear or maybe this is a bad question or maybe, uh, maybe I should say something else. And so I, we were constantly stepping on each other because just as I would go to add to my original question, he'd finally be coming around to an answer. What, what I came to realize talking to other people and, and just spending some, you know, enough time talking to him is that unlike most people, he was, he was actually thinking about his answers. Um, he, he was not one to make a flippant, um, cho- a flippant choice of words. He, he, he really doesn't allow himself to do much in the way of sloppy thinking. So even in cases where I think he's wrong or where, you know, he, he would, um, he has a view that I, I don't understand. It's it's rare that you would get the sense that this was not a conclusion that uh, had had that, that you would always get the sense that this was a conclusion he'd worked towards that that considerable thought had gone into there wasn't a this wasn't an emotional reaction this wasn't uh, this this wasn't something that uh, you know he he believed because he believed most people believed it he he's 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 always going to do the, the intellectual work himself. Again, even if it's, if it's to a point that, that, uh, is not at all, there's not at all a consensus about it. He at least independently thought himself there, which is, you know, a- admirable, certainly in its own way. And I thought it was interesting how you described that even if you would circle back to a subject you had talked about before where you knew he had already formed an opinion on this, that he would still go through this process every time of, analyzing what do I think about this before I say say what I think, even if I already have a, an opinion about it, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. And he he even says things like, oh, I'm trying to think about what I think here. What's the best way to say this? Um, or um, he, he would say things like, it's always this case of, or with these things, it's always like he, he has, he has these kind of mental... Um, you know, in like Silicon Valley and Wall Street, there's a popularity of these sort of mental models, um, these ways of sort of, you know, counteracting or in some cases using to your advantage the different cognitive biases we have. Peter, I think, is in some cases running through that as like a toolkit. Um, he, he wants to make sure that he's not thinking sloppily, that he's not thinking, uh, you know, that, well, I don't think we've talked about it yet, but it, this primary influence in Peter's life is, is the is the philosopher Rene Girard, whose mimetic theory is basically that we don't really know what we think, we don't really know what we want, so we just think what other people are thinking, and we just want what other people are are wanting. And Peter is is perhaps because of this influence really reluctant to ever do that. And so it's not that he's contrarian; it's that he doesn't like to defer to whatever the majority is. 
He wants to think about it himself. And so he's, that, that's a process that, a habit he's developed over the years of like, well, I'm, I'm really going to run myself through this all the way. Um, and, and that I, I think serves him well as an investor. Um, you know, it, it probably, uh, means he's in his own head a lot. It probably, uh, means he overthinks things at times. Um, but it, it, it has created a, a unique worldview that's been pretty lucrative. So your book, Conspiracy, it's out in paperback now. And mm -hmm. the original subtitle was Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan, Gawker, and the Anatomy of an Intrigue. And the new paperback subtitle is A True Story of Power, Sex, and a Billionaire's Secret Plot to Destroy a Media Empire. Uh-huh. So is there a story behind that change? Yes, definitely. Um, it it. I don't know. I don't want to say I got it wrong, but you're, one of the, in, one of the things that you get the opportunity to do with a paperback is adjust the, uh, positioning of the title. And, you know, my thinking when I was writing the original book and when I was positioning it is that this story is, is about so much more than what happened between Hulk Hogan and Gawker, between Teal and Gawker, between Teal and Hulk Hogan and all these surreal characters that are involved in this multi-million dollar, you know, 10-year conspiracy, but it's about what does it mean to want to, to do something in secret? What does it mean to try to do something that nobody thinks is, is possible? What, what are the consequences of, of power? How does power work? That's what I was sort of obsessed with. That, that's what I was fascinated with in the story. My, my take was less like, is it good that Peter did this? Is it, should it be allowed that Peter did this? And more, how did he do it? And what can we learn from what happened? And, um, I think, uh, what, what the, what the publisher's opinion was, was that all that is, is fascinating and that's great that it's in the book. But from a packaging and positioning standpoint, maybe we should learn some lessons from Gawker, which is that, you know, you, you, you lead with the juicy part. You lead with, with, you know, sex and power and vengeance as the main themes as a way of sucking people. And I think they actually maybe even moved the category from like a, a business book to a true crime book, um, which, uh, which I thought was interesting as well. So I'm, I'm sort of interested to see how one, one edition, uh, does versus the other. I think, you know, if, if I was, if my goal was to write a book that sold as many copies as possible, if I was thinking about it like a Gawker writer and I didn't care what I thought, I just thought what would play better to the audience, I would have written a, you know, um, I, let me, let me put it this way. I, I don't know if you've read Bad Blood about the, the sort of rise and fall of Theranos. The advantage that the author has in that story is that the main character is utterly irredeemable. She's a hundred percent bad. She, you know, she had almost no justification for the massive fraud that she pulled off. I, I just found myself over and over again so intrigued by Peter and his motivation that it, it, it made it impossible for me to write a book in which, you know, he is the sole villain and Gawker is the, uh, helpless and undeserved victim. I think that would have played better as a story, but it's just, it's just not where the facts took me. When you said that you just constantly were flipping back and forth on whose side you were on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and look, I think this is probably why I would not be well suited for a conspiracy. <laughs> All, all I could, all I could really think about was the, the, the people on both sides. Like I came to like Nick and, and came to feel 
terrible that he had undergone this massive reversal of fortune. Um, AJ, most of all, I found to be the most sort of, uh, you know, much more sympathetic than I thought. He's the one that wrote the article, which, um, which, which published the whole Hogan sex tape that brought down the company. And, and even with Peter, I, I came to so admire his independent thinking and, and his unique worldview that again, yeah, it made it so hard for me to go, here's the good guy. Here's the bad guy. I, I, I came to think of it less of like, you know, is this an underdog story where the, you know, um, or, or is this a, 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 a villain and more, this this was a story between two sharks uh, that fought each other and one of them won. You know, it, 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 it neither of them was was helpless, and uh, and and both of them put up a pretty good fight. I think it's interesting that you're talking about the publisher moving the book from the business section to the true crime section. I, one of the blurbs on the book is from Brad Thor, who I think is sort of a political thriller. Um, yes. fiction writer um was that part of sort of positioning it more as like a thriller kind of book or so, i mean sort of the the interesting thing is Bra brad was one of the the first people to blurb the book he, he's on the the hardcover with the original title um brad had been a, a brad is a i mean an amazing writer and he'd been a fan of of my other sort of more historical work and so when i sat down to try my hand at this sort of new genre or call it narrative nonfiction or narrative storytelling. Um, he was, he was someone I turned to for some advice. And so he was nice enough to blurb the book. Yeah. I, I think, look, I'm, as a creative, you're always trying to look at what you could have done better. I think, you know, e even looking at the, the colors that I chose and, and, you know, I, I chose this word intrigue, um, that, that, uh, you know, isn't, not everyone is familiar with what intrigue is. Um, as, as a synonym for sort of conspiracy or scheming or plotting. And so I, I may have, uh, overthought it and I may have not been as exciting or ins sensational as I needed, uh, or as I could have been for this book to, to, to earn the audience that, I, that I think it deserves. Yeah. I mean, one thing in the book that was sort of news to me is there, there's this implication that Peter may have funded Gamergate. Yes. Um, you say when the, when the subject comes up, you say Peter declines to discuss it on the record. And then later on, when you, you are, are asking, asking him if he had anything to do with the Gawker unionization, he yes. says, you know, that is the one thing that we actually had nothing to do with. Yes. And putting those two statements together makes it seem like he did fund Gabrigate. I mean, that's, that's how I read it. Uh, so, so it's interesting. There were sort of, um, one of the, one of the interesting things about writing a book about someone who funded a conspiracy is and operated in secret is that it's it's hard to trust them right like it's uh it not only is it hard to trust them because you don't know what their agenda is now but it's hard to trust them because you don't know that you know that they are speaking to you in part to establish the narrative that they want about what they're thinking like, uh one of my favorite writers is this, he's written a bunch of books about some sort of conspiratorial things. His name is Edward Epstein. And he, he said that, you know, the fundamental problem of journalism is that journalists are dependent on sources and sources are inherently self-interested. And so in the same way that, you know, Gawker is, is incentivized to make themselves look as meek as possible and as helpless as possible and as much the victim as possible, Teal is motivated to sort of 
upplay the righteousness of what he was doing and the ethics by which he operated and sort of conveniently not acknowledge or deny the unsavory elements of what he funded or supported or was a part of. So um, there were these sort of rumors swirling about that that he had been either sort of a fellow traveler with some of those alt-right figures or he'd supported them or funded them or or, or whatever. It, it does seem interesting that halfway through this conspiracy, suddenly all these characters who you know, were not particularly influential before crystallized in this sort of populist backlash uh, movement against Gawker that, that inflicts, you know, potentially millions of dollars of damage on them as they are fighting off Teal. And then many of those same characters become pretty instrumental in the alt-right and the, uh, you know, the online sort of support for Trump in the 2016 election, which Teal is also uh, obviously part of. And so, yeah, there, there, there is this association. I can't make any sort of firm uh, uh, accusations or even insinuations. And, and Teal was not willing to categorically deny or confirm anything. So it's just sort of there. And I, I have to leave it to the, to the reader and, and hopefully to other journalists to explore that connection a bit further. Well, when you're talking about Nick and Peter as like these two sharks, I mean, yes. that makes me think too of this, this line in the book, you say, uh, I would think as I wrote this book, these people I am talking with, what are they capable of? How will they respond to the publication of a book they do not control? Yes. I mean, that must be kind of scary, right? Or It was it was super scary. I'll, look, I'll tell you the scariest moment in the, in the whole process is, I don't know if you remember, but uh, in January of 2018, uh, Michael Wolff publishes Fire and Fury, which is the book about the Trump administration that he'd sort of snuck in under the radar, gotten all these on the record quotes from people in the Trump administration. It's sort of the first big controversial book about the administration. So my book comes out about a month before that or a month after that. And in between that time, uh, uh, Trump hires Charles Harder, who is the lawyer who Teal uses in, uh, the conspiracy to bring down Gawker. And, uh, Charles Harder writes a, a note to, uh, Henry Holt, which is, um, uh, Michael Wolf's publisher basically saying, do not publish this book. We are going to sue you. Everything, you know, basically trying to stop the publication of the book. Like two days, uh, after, uh, this letter is sent, I get a note from Charles Harder, who I'd interviewed many times for the book, you know, very friendly, very nice. Uh, well, and he's a major character in the book. I mean, he's, on, he's mentioned like half the pages in the book. So there's yes. a lot that he could potentially, you know, scrutinize. Yes, absolutely. I mean, he, he is the third, he is sort of the third conspirator. He is the, the, one of the main characters. Yes. And so he sends me this note and goes, Hey, I just wanted to let you know, I'm really looking forward to the book. Please send me an early copy. You know, it wasn't threatening in any way, but it was just like, this guy is no longer just an interesting character I wrote a book about. This guy is now the lawyer for the president of the United States who's trying to, uh, who, who's trying to, to orchestrate prior restraint on the publication of a book, uh, at the very day, you know, on the very day he's sending me this note. So it was scary. Uh, it was there. I mean, I, I tried more or less just not to think about it, which, which was, um, I, I think just sort of a suspension of, of common sense just so I could get through the publication process and just write about it. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I, I think of, of all the people, 
uh, that I was probably, I, I still find to be the most unpredictable and, and alarming are these sort of alt-right characters, um, who have, who have sort of caused so much misery and pain for people through online harassment. I think that was probably what I was most worried about. I, I found Peter to be a, an, an honorable person. And, and actually that's, um, that, that was one of the, the most intriguing quotes I got about Peter. That I, t- I spoke to someone who's a friend of both Peter and Nick's. And he was saying, he was like, look, Peter is basically your dream enemy because he operates by this sort of internal code of conduct. And he has these sort of ethical constraints that he, he tries very seriously to live by. He's like, the problem with Peter being your enemy is that Peter has unlimited resources. Hmm. And I thought that was an interesting way to put it. And, and it is, it, you know, it is a, it is, it, it was certainly a concern, but one I tried to put out of my mind. Well, I mean, one thing about Peter having unlimited resources is that you, you say in the book, or, you know, according to, to what he told you, that he was very sort of, he had these ethical guidelines, uh, in how sure. he went about this. But, he says, or, or some of the people say, we could have just filed a million frivolous lawsuits and taken Gawker down that way. Um, yes. Is there, given that, is there is there something that needs to be changed about the legal system or something to make it so that you couldn't just take down any media organization in a completely unethical way with limitless resources? I mean, that that is what's so interesting about this case, is everyone is very alarmed by the potential precedent that it sets, um, and, 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 you know, what it means that a billionaire could destroy a media outlet. Like, what does it mean that you could write a story about a professional wrestler and then in AJ's case, one day wake up and find there's a hundred million dollar judgment against you and all your assets are frozen because your website also pissed off a billionaire many years previous. Like that, that I understand makes people very uncomfortable. What I think is interesting is that you could also equally argue that in this case, the justice system worked exactly as it was supposed to, right? Both both sides got adequate representation. Both sides got their day in court. Um, you know, u- ultimately a jury made this decision. Um, and, and, and ultimately, um, Gawker could have settled the case at any time. They just sort of refused to. Um, the, the idea that, uh, you know, a, a billionaire could could use these less ethical means to destroy a media outlet. I mean, one interesting sort of anecdote as I was writing the book, and I think I, I, I hint at it in the book or I talk about it, but I'd, I'd written in one of my columns, I was saying, look, this is, this is a reality. This is how these things can work. And, and a journalist had, had said, you know, well, let, let's give Ryan a taste of his own medicine. Why don't we file a bunch of frivolous lawsuits against him and see if he's able to defend himself? And, uh, this is actually funny. I don't think I've actually said this. I, I was screenshotting this tweet to send it to myself to use it for my research. And I, I accidentally sent it to Peter. Um, <laughs> and I was on a plane and I, it sent it to Peter and I was like, whoa, it was like too late for me to pull it back. You know, you like, you accidentally hit the wrong thing. Um, and so I, I sent it to Peter and, um, he very quickly replied and I was like, oh my God, what could he have possibly <laughs> said here? You know, and, and he said, he was like, it's much harder than people think. It's much, much, much harder than people think. And, and I thought that was an interesting remark from a person who'd actually done it, who'd spent all the money. And, and it's true. I mean, just the extreme amount of effort and secrecy, uh, that even this person with unlimited resources had to go through to do this thing that, you know, arguably 
for, for, for any sort of pure ROI standpoint or, or reputational standpoint was probably not a good idea. Um, I, to me, I think is kind of a natural deterrent. If this, that there isn't anything that Peter did here that people haven't been able to do since, you know, the days of the robber barons. If, if anything, our, our press reputations are stronger now than they were, you know, 50 or a hundred years ago. The fact that there are so few examples of this happening makes me think that, that the, the precedent is probably more limited than it, than it might seem. Hmm. So after um, Gawker went bankrupt, there was a Kickstarter by some of the Gawker writers to try to yeah. raise. They were trying to raise five hundred thousand dollars, and they only were pledged ninety thousand, so it didn't work yes. at all. And I was just curious if why do you think that this website that was so had so many readers got so little support for their Kickstarter? Yeah, it's it's fascinating, and I mean five hundred thousand dollars wouldn't have been enough to purchase it anyway. So it, it, it I think it failed in in it failed and it would have failed even if it had succeeded. But what's interesting is, you know, Peter had made this argument to me long before that Kickstarter had happened. Peter made the argument that I said, look, why, why do you think, you know, destroying Gawker is going to make a difference, right? Won't, won't another, wouldn't another website just pop up in its place? And his point was that, um, every company, every, uh, organization is a product of the time in which it was created. And early and, and its unique circumstances. And so early on in, uh, the blogosphere and in, in sort of the web 2.0 movement that there, it was just a unique set of circumstances that allowed this sort of renegade media outlet that didn't follow the rules, that was never really legally accountable for anything it said or did, that didn't care what people think, that, 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 that published, you know, rumors and half truths and, and sort of trafficked in this kind of content that no one else would touch. He, he believed that if Gawker suddenly disappeared, that those circumstances couldn't, that those confluence of circumstances could not be recreated. And so that Gawker would cease to exist in the same way that I would argue, you know, if Twitter suddenly disappeared tomorrow, I'm not sure a new Twitter would be created. I think it, you know, so much of Twitter is a result of that when it came out, you could, only put 140 characters in a text message. And, and it was, you know, it, it was this sort of generative evolution of technology. People invented the retweet and the at reply and all these things, right? And, and I think Peter's point was if Gawker disappeared, it couldn't come back and that it existed and people followed it because it existed. But it's not as if there was this rabid, a hardcore fan base for Gawker that deeply believed in its mission. It's just that, you know, people like looking at car crashes and train wrecks when they see them and they like gawking. That's what's in the name. So anyways, Peter's point was that if it disappeared, it wouldn't come back. And I think that Kickstarter is perhaps evidence of that claim. You know, here, here Gawker had a chance, uh, to, uh, regenerate from the support of billions of people that read the site over its, you know, 12 or so years of existence. And they couldn't even get, you know, 10% of the way to where they needed to get to buy even the domain name, let alone become a, a sustainable media outlet. 
Well, it's interesting because, yeah, at the start of the book, Peter is saying that by taking his hope is that by taking down Gawker, it'll change the tenor of Internet discourse. And, and I'm reading that and I'm like, OK, yeah. well, that obviously didn't happen because it always it just only seems to ever get more gossipy and malicious and petty and so on. But then by the end, you're making the point that things really have changed, at least in terms of celebrity sex tapes and things like that, that, that you know, there has been a things have improved in terms of how how much those are tolerated. Yeah, well, I mean, look, they changed in a couple of ways. They changed most starkly in the fact that Gawker, you know, doesn't exist, right? Um, and Nick Denton is no longer in control. At the very least, Nick Denton is no longer in control of Gawker. I know someone now owns the domain and is trying to rebuild it, but uh, Gawker does not, Gawker, the Nick Denton iteration does not exist. Um, and as far as sex tape go, yeah, look, outlets now think very carefully about what they publish and the potential legal consequences. No longer do they go, look, we're just an internet site. Uh, no one cares, right? Now, what is interesting, and, and I think perhaps, uh, is the unintended consequence of what, what Teal did is that there's this sort of diaspora of, uh, ex-Gawker writers who go off to all these different media outlets. You could argue that BuzzFeed is, picked up the mantle in some ways and you know writers at the Huffington Post picked up the mantle in other ways and and that that and that all these different uh that these people learned or were trained inside Gawker and have now gone and infused that DNA into the media as a whole so i think in in that sense it's hard to argue that the media culture that we have has gotten better um because it it's it's now just distributed it's like you know, we funded the the uh, freedom fighters in in the Iraq Iran War, and then they go off and become Al Qaeda. You know, it's very hard to contain these things, uh, even if the the organization itself falls apart. And then the the other part, and this is where I part ways with Teal the most. It's very hard to say that your concern is with internet bullying, with cruelty online, with small mindedness. You know, with with the suppression of political correctness and independent thinking, and you know uh, all of these things that Teal says are important, and then uh, you you put Trump in the White House and and you give him a Twitter account where he reaches you know far more people on a daily basis than Gawker ever reached. I think uh, you know to me that's that's the biggest contradiction of the of the of the mission that that Teal said was important to him. Did you ever ask him about that? I did. You know, he has complicated reasons for supporting Trump that I, I don't really agree with. I don't quite understand. Um, I wonder sometimes if, if, if he enjoys the contrarianness of the position most of all, or, or if it, to him it's more a, a belief that the, the presidency is a somewhat impotent office anyway, and that what's important is these sort of deeper, you know, quieter, more conspiratorial you know, changes that are happening. I don't really know, but it, it's, it's very hard to square an objection, a moral objection with how Gawker comported itself and the tweets that you regularly see from the president of the United States. And, and the fact that we're even making an equivalency there is, is, you know, insane. When I've seen suggestions, you know, that Teal supported um, James O'Keefe and Veritas and, yeah. you know, we mentioned Gamergate. I don't know. I'm, I don't know if that's true or not, but 
assuming that's correct, uh, it's hard to say what makes Gawker so bad and them any better. Yeah, no, I did ask him about James O'Keefe because at one point, this is several years ago, he paid some of James O'Keefe's legal bills. So you could maybe make the argument that James O'Keefe in 2010 is not quite the same James O'Keefe in 2016, 17, 18, 19. Um, I said, you know, how, how can you support this person who, you know, deliberately manipulates, uh, the, the news and hidden camera footage to destroy people that he, you know, he disagrees with or thinks are not good politically and, and, and sort of specializes in this sort of, you know, basically tr- trolling. Um, and his point was, um, that he didn't agree with what O'Keefe was doing, but that he at least appreciated that there was an ideological, uh, reason, that there was an ideological motivation for it. That he respected on free speech grounds the ideological motivation. And that his criticism of Gawker was that there was I- no ideology behind it, that it was more or less nihilism, and that this nihilism was uh, the, the most alarming thing. And I think that argument works as far as it goes, except for I, I'm not sure how ideologically motivated Milo Yiannopoulos is or, or Mike Cernovich is or, or, or a lot of these alt-right figures or even, even Trump himself. I think, you know, at the core, the core characteristic or the core ideology, uh, behind a lot of these figures is, is the lack of ideology, the love of attention and of, of inflicting, you know, sort of pain and frustration on other people, essentially nihilism. So it, to me, this is where, you know, Teal starts to become a bit, uh, inconsistent or, or at least, uh, where I have strong, strong disagreements with, with what happened and the, and the unintended consequences of empowering these people. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, there's been a documentary. It's called Nobody Speak Trials of the Free Press about this. And there are at least three movies in development about this, including one, I think, based on your book. Mm-hmm. What do you make of this phenomenon of, of all this, all these movies about this case? So so my issue with the documentary is, uh, although I thought they got some great interviews with John Cook and they got some great interviews with, with Nick Denton and... Uh, with, with some of the other care and with AJ, certainly in the scene of AJ, you know, opening the, 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 the whole, his bank account to see this $200 million hold, I thought was, you know, incredibly striking scene. I just don't know how you make a documentary about a conspiracy and you don't, you don't interview the most interesting person, which is the person who pulled it off. Right. I, I thought it, its main deficiency is that. It doesn't actually get the point of view of any of the people actually involved in doing this thing. So it becomes so, so biased towards, uh, the other side that it essentially becomes almost a piece of sort of lost cause propaganda that Gawker was this force for good in the universe that was, you know, great journalism embodied that was destroyed by a billionaire. And, and then you notice in the documentary, they juxtapose, it's not even fully about Gawker. The second half of the documentary is just about um, uh, a billionaire in Las Vegas buying a newspaper uh, that, that had covered him negatively. And the two cases could not be more different and, and more unrelated. Uh, as far as the movies go, again, I, I mean, I heard one of the scripts is, is uh, you know, focusing on AJ Delirio, the character, 
again, I, I think AJ is fascinating, but I, I just don't see how the the move um, a movie about a conspiracy orchestrated by a billionaire would be told from the perspective of the journalist that wrote the article, you know, of a stolen sex tape about a celebrity. I don't understand that. Um, you know, the, the, the people that are attached to the document, to the, the movie about my book are, are, you know, it's a pretty impressive group. So I'm sort of, you know, pinching myself and kind of in awe that, that it's even happening. And, and, you know, as a fan of, of, of the big short, which Charles Randolph wrote the script for and, and, um, and, uh, Black Sparrow, which was, was Francis Lawrence's last movie. I'm, I'm just like, if it happens and I hope it happens and I think it will happen. I, I just, honestly, I'm just very excited to watch it because it would be interesting to see somebody else's take on the, the events that I, you know, spent so much time studying. I mean, I don't know how that movie would turn out, uh, compared to your book, but it just seems the general trend is to turn, Nick Denton and Gawker into folk heroes and present Peter Thiel as a, yeah, again, like a James Bond villain. And it, it, it seems like that's the way that history will remember this, or do you think I that's mean, how it... I think, I, I I hope not, and I don't think so, um, if if only because uh, Charles Randolph has has this unusual ability to, to capture uh, stories from sort of multiple perspectives. I thought that's what's so unique about The Big Short, that it's a... a I wouldn't have thought you could turn the big short into a movie, but they, they managed to do it so brilliantly. Um, so I, I hope not. And I agree. I think the idea that Peter Thiel is the villain and Gawker is the helpless, you know, undeserving victim is far too simple, uh, simple to the point of, of being completely inaccurate and also not particularly interesting. And I don't think teaches us much. So I don't think that'll happen. I hope it doesn't happen. And I, I would also, though, give credit where credit is due. I think this is, you know, we, we have this idea that victors, you know, history is written by the victors. I think Gawker has done, Gawker and its supporters, let's say, have done a very good job of, of writing the narrative about what happened and, and sort of winning the cultural war, uh, even if they lost the, the, even if they lost the media outlet and even if they lost their jobs, they have certainly won the overall sort of cultural narrative about what happened and, and, and what their place in the world was. Hmm. All right. So we're pretty much out of time. So do you have any other projects that you're working on that you want to mention or any final thoughts? Yeah. I mean, the, the book's out in paperback. I hope people will give it a chance and, and stay tuned for, for, for when the movie comes out. I, I, I think, to me, that what's so fascinating about this story is that all the characters are larger in life. It's 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 Shakespearean in in the excesses and the um, the the flaws and the virtues of all the characters, and uh, that that's ultimately what I tried to capture in the book. And I think I wanted to create some distance from it. I didn't want this to be a current events book. I wanted it us to be able to look at it historically because that's I think the place that it 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 is best suited and, and seen from. And, you know, whether I succeeded or failed is ultimately up to the reader and the people like you. And, and I just really appreciate you, uh, you reading it and, and talking to me about it. Yeah, it's a great book. I mean, I think it's the New York times on the cover says it's a hell of a page turner. And that's certainly true. Uh, there's so, there's so, so much stuff in the book too, that we haven't gotten to a chance to talk about in terms of, you know, the character of Hulk Hogan. And there's so many references to Machiavelli and, uh, the ancient worlds. It's uh, it's just a really thoughtful, intelligent 
page turner I mean, book. I mean, th- thank you. And look, I mean, there's 20,000 legal pages of, uh, or pages of legal documents as part of the story. And it's like, there's so much that I didn't even get to put in the book because there's so all these side plots and stories and absurd characters. It's just, it's just an unreal story from start to finish. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not sure we'll experience something like this again. And so I, you know, I feel lucky to have, you know, been able to sort of memorialize a small part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And so the book, again, it's called Conspiracy. Everyone go check it out. And the author is Ryan Holiday. So Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Ryan Holiday for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.